was his Green Bay Packers that beat my Kansas, my Kansas City Chiefs in the very first Super Bowl 50 years ago. And the only solace was three years later, the Chiefs came back and beat the Minnesota Vikings, I believe, with Lenny and Otis and Buck and Willie. Uh, and that was the last time they were there. Uh, but Coach Lombardi built a dynasty based upon fundamentals, okay? And he had a practice that at the beginning of every training season, he would get his team in the, the end zone, and uh, he would start to talk about the fundamentals. He would hold up a pigskin and said, Gentlemen, this is a football. And he had an all-pro wide receiver in the back one time who raised his hand and said, Coach, he says, Yes, Max, slow down. <laughs> and that may be how you felt last month when we launched into the seventh chapter of Matthew and we raced all the way to the second word. Fundamentals, right? And we learned then about the fundamental of judge not, that Jesus is not saying that we suspend the faculty of discernment and judgment that he gave us, but rather that we should not judge others based upon personality or preference or prejudice or performance or appearance. How's that for alliteration? <laughs> and if we delight in finding fault in uh, judging the facts before we know them, uh, not knowing the circumstances, or without mercy, we may be guilty of the judgment that Jesus judges as wrong. Instead, he says in John 7, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And so today, we're going to go on and study the whole chapter, excuse me, the whole passage, verses 1 through 5, about judgment. And we're going to try to figure out what Jesus really means here about judge not and learn something, hopefully, about right judgment. And the, Jesus gives us logical reasons for judging not. Uh, and the first one is that you be not judged. Okay? Uh, now, we mentioned last month that one possible application here is that if you judge others wrongly, they may return the favor. Uh, it is a practical reality that those who are known to be hypercritical, always pointing out the faults of others, are really easy targets for those others to judge. And invariably, those who spend their time criticizing others wrongly are the most sensitive uh, to the criticism of others, uh, forgetting what they themselves have done. Conversely, the person who does not have a judgmental spirit is appreciated by all and probably has a thicker skin when criticized. But is this what Jesus is talking about? Methinks he goes much, much further here. And I think he's talking about the judgment of God here. Now, my interpretation may very well draw some flack from some Christians who point out passages like, how about John 5? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. Or how about Romans 8? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. They reason that Christians are taken completely out of the realm of judgment. So Kent, what part of no condemnation do you not understand? Well, let me give them the dignity of a response. I think we can all agree that the Sermon on the Mount is directed at Christ followers. So whatever the sermon says about judgment applies to Christ followers, to children of the Heavenly Father. And before we go on to more substantial reasons, let me address a problem that most of the commentators, at least the ones that I've studied uh, concerning this passage, really weren't dealing with in their era, uh, at least not to the extent that we are. We live in a hypercritical, hypersensitive culture uh, in which any criticism is judged as judgmental. For example, if a woman sees something in another woman and just in good faith suggests that maybe she'd cover up purposes of modesty, she can be judged for body shaming, okay? If you criticize or challenge any kind of worldview or, or, or practice, you can have an epithet thrown at you, thrown at you, ending with phobia, okay? Or if you challenge any assertion made by anybody else, you could be judged as a hater, You've all heard these words more recently, haven't you? Therefore, even if a Christian can avoid all the problems of a judgmental spirit, this is the world in which we live. So it takes a bit of courage to stand for anything relating to virtue and wisdom. So these pejoratives and the hypersensitivity causes us all to walk on eggshells when we see any immorality, including in the church, we do not follow the love of the prophet Isaiah who warned, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Now, within the church, and especially among evangelicals, even predating our contemporary hypersensitivity, there has been a general tendency to put on a happy face. We are so anxious to proclaim the doctrine, the valid doctrine of justification by faith only, that we can miss or minimize other important doctrines. And one of those is this matter of judgment. Scripture tells us that there are three kinds of judgment, and we should not fail to distinguish those three. The best way to isolate and understand these three judgments is to look at parallel passages. The most well-known and is that the judgment that we sometimes call uh, the, the, the final judgment, determining one's final destiny or eternity, which separates the saved from the lost uh, and uh, the, the uh, heaven and hell. Okay? Uh, this is found clearly explained in Matthew 25, uh, and it's, it's the separation of the sheep from the goats. Uh, and, and I really don't know anybody who takes any scripture seriously who denies this doctrine, but there are a few out there. Uh, uh, so whether, whether you know, you're talking about John 5 and no, not coming into any judgment or 
no condemnation in Romans 8. Those things are referring to the judgment and condemnation that comes to those who do not believe or the lake of fire. Uh, instead, the believer passes from this awful death into eternal life simply by faith because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. But there's a second type of judgment found in the context of the Lord's table uh, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11. And there it says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. For when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Uh, then the significance here is this passage states unequivocally that the Father judges his children. It goes on to say that a Christian who takes the Lord, the Lord's table, in an unworthy manner, may become sick, may even die. Now, a couple of points uh, in digression here that are important. This does not imply that all sickness uh, or death is a result of punishment. Rather, when communion is taken in an unworthy manner, or one commits some other sin, God may very well remove his protection and allow Satan to attack, perhaps with illness, perhaps something else. Clearly, we saw that Satan was allowed by God to afflict Job in order to bring God glory. And this seems to be what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 5 when he talks about turning an unrepentant, adulterous church member over to Satan. Secondly, some may feel that sickness, and especially death, is a rather disproportionate response to a minor breach in formality or ritual. Okay? Again, I urge you to consider the context here to understand the meaning of an unworthy manner. Uh, the context helps us see that it includes, but is not simply taking the elements of the Lord's table flippantly or even while intoxicated. Rather, before we commune with the Lord, he instructs us to examine ourselves seriously. See if there's any wicked way within us in any aspect of our lives. And that examination should bring to mind any and all sin because sin separates us from God and requires confession and repentance in order to close that gap. And when we judge ourselves and repent before we take the elements, before we sit down at the table with our Father, we can avoid this second type of judgment. Digressing a little further here, way into the weeds, this may lead to a question about young children and the Lord's table. we got a few of those around here. Uh, now, I'm not going to comment, and I shouldn't comment, on whether God will judge a young child who takes communion or the Lord's table without understanding it. But I do believe that parents can set their child up to become a ritualistic adult by teaching them that the Lord's table is simply something that Christians do without thinking, without examining, 
without repentance. And that could very well lead to judgment for that child in later years. Too many Christians do not take the privilege of the Lord's table seriously. It has become a simple ritual to them. Now, all this to say that we should not be Pollyanna Christians thinking that, oh yes, I'm saved, and therefore I'm never judged. If you are still not convinced, please consider Hebrews 12, where we find this kind of remarkable statement. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The whole point here of this doctrine is that there is a purpose for judgment and punishment, and we need to recognize that person. The father judges and punishes the transgressions of his children because he loves them, and he's preparing them for his glory in eternity. Hebrews 12 goes on to says, besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. In fact, if you Look back at this passage. The author of Hebrews makes it clear that if one never feels the discipline of God, that one may have something about which really to be concerned. Because that person may not really be a true child of God. And if you look back at the passage on the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with God. The world. So maybe, I haven't thought this through fully, but maybe we should pray for discipline. Now, we don't like it. Hebrews 12 goes on and says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So that's a second type of discipline to which we are all subject. But there's a third type known as the judgment of rewards. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, we're told that for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay? And earlier in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul explains the correlation between the judgment and our works on earth, which he describes with different substances. He says there, now, if anyone builds on a foundation of gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day of judgment will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, 
he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So, if you are saved, you are certainly and securely saved. But it may only be fire insurance. And certain deeds are not covered by the policy. You and I will be judged for the quality of our works and rewarded accordingly. Finally, in, uh, in Revelation 14, John tells us this about his vision. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So this third judgment does not determine our eternal destiny, but it affects the eternal destiny of those who are saved. So judge not that you be not judged. Hopefully it's clear now that the main reason that we don't judge in an unrighteous manner is not because the world is round, not because if we judge people, they'll judge us back. As true as that may be, Rather, it is because there's something much more important that you and I have to answer for those things, and we expose ourselves to the judgment of God when we judge unrighteously. Uh, and in this last judgment, Christians will not lose their salvation, but it seems clear that we will lose something of importance in eternity for our unrighteous judgments. So, even though you're saved by grace through faith, and you have complete assurance of your place in heaven, please know that you and I are subject to God's judgment in this life and the next, and we ignore that at our peril. So the, third, the second reason that Jesus gives us to judge not is that we set the standard of our own judgment. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, one of the commentators that I use for this study is an Englishman. And his way of putting this is that a man is always paid back in his own coin. Recite that with a British accent and you'll get it. All right? And, it's, uh, and it is so true that people who, com who point out the minor imperfections of others are amazed when they're judged by the same standards. However, as before, Jesus goes much further here. In Luke 12, Jesus interprets a parable about greater or lesser punishment. And in so doing, he kind of sets out a principle. It says there, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Now think about this. In other words, our sense of equal justice before the law has some nuances. God judges by various standards based upon what we in the law call culpability. He who knows what the law says, kind of like those scum-sucking attorneys, are held to a higher standard. Okay? Is there any other attorneys in the room? Please forgive me. All right. Similarly, one who knows what the master desires and then disobeys is held to a higher standard than anyone who sins out of ignorance. Now, be clear here. Because of general revelation and the conscience that God gives us, we find this in Romans 1, we're all guilty 
and we will be punished, but those, some, will be punished by a higher standard. A clear example of this is found in James 3, where it says that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So, you know, I've said often that uh, I get much, so much more out of the, the study and preparation for these messages than I can possibly impart to you. But that very study and preparation for teaching also puts me in a position of greater culpability, not to mention hypocrisy. And when I violate the commands and the principles, the very ones that I teach. So Paul lays this out in Romans 2. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. In summary, uh, one who judges others can have greater culpability if he sets himself up as an authority or is hypocritical. He can expect to be judged by the standard that he sets for others. So if I condemn others, that same standard will apply to me. Uh, nothing gives me pause in judging others like this principle. Uh, just by hearing this teaching, you all now have greater culpability. You're welcome. But even more so me by, by teaching. The third reason that Jesus gives us to not judge is that we are incapable of judging. Uh, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, earlier Jesus highlighted our hypocrisy in a relation to God when we practice our righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. Uh, and, but here he highlights our hypocrisy in relation to other people when we are critical of their small faults before we have dealt with our own major faults. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about God's word is that it doesn't sugarcoat or whitewash people. We get the whole unvarnished truth. Uh, we all have feet of clay, meaning all of us have weaknesses and faults. David was described as a man after God's own heart. And he was raised up by God from shepherd boy to king, truly a giant among Old Testament figures. Yet, yet it shouldn't surprise us to see that David provides one of the clearest examples of this principle. You see, young King David maintained a rather large harem, but that didn't satisfy him. You see, he espied a young woman and desired to have her. And finding her with child as a result, he arranged to have her husband, off fighting David's war, to be conveniently killed in battle. This makes David both an adulterer and a murderer. Then comes along Nathan. Now, Nathan loved David, but he loved God more. Nathan tells David a story about a poor farmer who only has one little lamb that he cherishes like a daughter. But a rich, powerful farmer comes along and steals that little lamb just so he can feed a guest. And David becomes incensed and demands the identity of this rich farmer. As the Lord lives, said David, 
the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the land fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan looks him in the eye and says, you are that man. David could, he could see the splendor in the eye of the rich farmer, but he, the log in his own eye prevented him from seeing that he was the rich farmer. Speaking of hypocrisy, I was once listening to some teaching, a tape, or I, I can't remember where it was, on the evils of sarcasm. And I heard one of my children using sarcasm quite a bit. So I confronted that child. And he looked at me and he said, that's rich. You're talking to me about sarcasm? Yeah. Yeah, I was. Uh, you know, my kids, you know it's rampant. It comes from somewhere. Now, I'm not saying that sarcasm is a good standard response, but it does have its place uh, in, in small doses. It seems that Jesus uses a bit of sarcasm, or at least irony, to explain this third reason to avoid judging others. He declares this principle in several ways. Um, when we're critical of others, we say, and perhaps even think, our concern is over righteousness and truth. But if that's really true, we would judge ourselves first. Because we generally don't judge ourselves first, it's a ruse, deception, and we're deceiving ourselves. In order to judge, you've got to have an objective standard by which to measure. And if I cannot see my own faults because of the log in my eye, what kind of standard am I using? It's certainly not righteousness and truth. Secondly, the hypocritical, hypercritical spirit tends to target people rather than principle. It is appropriate and right to help a brother or sister deal with a blind spot or offense. But the hypercritical spirit seeks to condemn the person rather than to uphold that which is good and right. Now, if that's the motivation, if we have a bias or animus, we're really not objective and therefore incapable of being an impartial judge. We've got to exclude all hint of a personal vendetta when we render true judgment. We must differentiate between the person and the offense. And that's sometimes very difficult to do. Yeah, Jesus goes on with a little bit of sarcasm when he asked, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own? You know, and the analogy seems clear that the log renders one incapable of sight. So how does a log-blinded ophthalmologists remove a foreign substance from the eye of another. Finally, Jesus calls us out for what we really are. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. How can we judge when our goal is to condemn? And how can we judge if we've done the same or worse and never repented? So if we really wish to help others, the first thing we need to do is remove the log from our own eye, judge ourselves so that we can see clearly to help our brother or sister. That means we've got to realize any judgmental spirit, any hypercriticism, any hypocrisy is wrong. It's really just a log or beam.
compared to the speck that our brother has. Paul says it succinctly. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Again, we're not saying that Christians should never help correct an erring brother or sister. Remember Galatians 6 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In fact, Jesus told us that when somebody offends us, well, the first thing we should do is go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's Matthew 18. It's a process there for dispute resolution. Now, remember, God's ways and his word are always balanced. So before we can help or confront another, we must be honest and admit the truth about ourselves. When we find ourselves lacking, we must first judge ourselves. Paul follows up immediately in Galatians 6 with, Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. So if you want to remove the log that you may have to cleanse yourself from any such attitude of judgment, what can you do about it? Well, one practical tip is to consider the opposite of a judgmental spirit, to uncover or filter out those wrong attitudes. In 1 Corinthians 13, we find the symptoms or attributes of love. I, I think we put a little test on the, on the handout there that you can take. You can ask yourself questions honestly. Am I ever impatient, unkind? Do I ever boast or envious? Am I arrogant or rude? Do I insist on my own way? Am I irritable, resentful? Uh, do I rejoice in any wrongdoing by others so that I may criticize them? Do I give up on others when they hurt me? Do I believe the worst of others when I hear about an incident? Do I fail to hope and pray for God's healing for others? Do I stop caring when others do not get their acts in line according to my timetable? Uh, you know, if you've ever truly examined yourself or if you do so today, which I hope you will during the Lord's table, this can be a very painful process. It requires that we judge ourselves, and when we see what we've done, the same things that we accuse others, that's pretty humbling. Uh, but this is the only way to rid ourselves of a judgmental spirit. It's only after we've moved the beam in our own eye that we can see clearly, objectively, and lovingly to pluck the speck out of the eye of another. You know, uh, the eye is the most sensitive organ in the body. It closes with any touch, and its repair or cleaning requires delicacy, calmness, and patience. Uh, this, uh, this analogy is so appropriate, because when we try to help another recognize and remove their problem, just like the eye, we're operating on the most sensitive thing in the person, their soul. And it requires Humility, sympathy, calmness, and patience. We should be so aware of our own sin that when we see it in another, far from condemning, we should be sympathetic and it should make us feel like crying. Because we know firsthand how much better it feels to get rid of that beam and we want them to experience that same joy and relief from guilt. It's only then that you and I can speak the truth in love to another. 
And if you're on the receiving end of this kind of compassionate correction, you know it, and you thank that person for speaking the truth to you. So in summary, the standard that Jesus sets for us is a very, very high one. In all our interactions with others, we are to be neither harsh and condemning nor hypocritical uh, by blaming others while excusing ourselves. Uh, rather, we should judge and correct ourselves before we attempt to restore, build up, and reconcile our brother constructively. John Chrysostom was an early church father known for speaking out against abuses of power, both political and within the church. And he addressed how to deal with a brother who has sinned. I think this is at the a quote at the bottom of your, your, your sheet. Correct him, but not as a foe, nor as an adversary exacting of penalty, but as a physician providing medicines. Yeah, sometimes medicine or surgery hurts, yet it heals. Jesus and the other New Testament writers would probably say this, correct him as one, as a loving brother whose goal is to rescue, restore, and reconcile. So in short, we need to be as critical of ourselves as we are with others and as forgiving of others as we are of ourselves. All of this teaching that Jesus gives us here looks forward to and is the basis for a rule that Jesus taught that we know as golden. I want to do something a little different today. I'd like you to take your pew Bibles. May not, this is ESV. It may not be your favorite, but for sake of unity, we're going to read together out of 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, and if you need it, uh, it's on page 959. We're going to start there. We're just going to read the first seven verses together. And what I'd like you to do is to visualize how you are or maybe are not living this out in your relationships with others. Uh, when someone needs it, are you ready to give loving correction with the attitude and clear conscience that Jesus requires? So if you're all there, we'll start at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Together. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. L Lord God, we give all praise and glory to you that you have given us this instruction. 
that you have helped us to see that before we go about the duty of purifying and helping others to remove the offense or the sin in their lives, we must look at ourselves. We must judge ourselves. And we must come clean. Because our ultimate goal is to rescue, restore, and reconcile. Thank you, Father, for the great truth that you have given us through your Son, who, though blameless, went to the cross for each one of us to help demonstrate the fact that love never ends. And that's because it originates from you. It is boundless. Thank you, Father, for this privilege. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.